what drives me to wake up every morning and, and go work with our customers and continue building BioLabs is the sense of progress that we're making towards better accountability in AI. Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Alyssa Vishnik. Alyssa is the CEO of YLabs, the AI observability company building tools that power robust and responsible AI deployment. Prior to YLabs, Alyssa was CTO in residence at the Allen Institute for AI, where she evaluated commercial potential for the latest AI research. Earlier, Alyssa spent nine years at Amazon leading machine learning initiatives, including forecasting and data science platforms. Alyssa is also the founder of R Squared, a global community of a thousand plus AI practitioners who are committed to making enterprise AI technology responsible. Welcome, Alyssa. So happy to finally meet you after hearing your name and kind of watching your career for the last few years. Thank you for having me, Shauna. I have listened to so many episodes of What Fuels You. I'm super, super excited to be here and uh, looking forward to listening to myself. I want to thank Tim Porter for connecting us. And he was a fun guest. So, okay, I'm going to hit you with some rapid fire. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. So I know that you've lived many places. What's your favorite city? Wow, this is a tough one because to me, uh, the favorite city changes depending on where you are at in your life. Uh, but I think over and over, I love coming back to one place in the world uh, and it's in Crete. And the city there is Hania, which is on the west side of Crete. I think it has the most incredible combination of sea, mountains, people, culture, and just, uh, you know, a, a balance of relaxing and uh, getting new experiences, both with family and alone. <laughs> okay, what's your favorite way? I'm guessing with, you know, being a mom and starting a business and being in the AI space and tech, it's been a little hectic, I'm guessing, but what's your best and favorite way to unwind? Walking, a lot of walking. And I loved walking, you know, before it was cool, uh, what became cool in 2020. But I, um, I actually didn't start driving up until a few years ago, I used to walk everywhere as much as I could. It's very meditative. And I am a bit of an information junkie. So I like walking and listening to things It could be an audiobook, it could be a podcast, it could be just some music. So that's my best way to relax. Yeah, I'm the exact same way. I love it. Um, and what is your biggest pet peeve? That's hard. That's a hard one. I would say dishonesty probably is the one that would annoy me the most. Um, I, I'm a very easygoing person. think life is complicated. People are complicated. So not many things I could call pet peeves, but dishonesty is probably um, the one I would pick. Yeah. And what is your um, the best concert or your favorite concert you've ever been to? That is a hard one. Um, 
maybe it would be Moby. I went to a Moby concert, I think like 10 years ago, and it was my favorite because it's the music from like my high school years and it's still cool and i was able to connect uh with kind of with the vibe with the music and the way that made me feel like i'm in high school again but <laughs> also you know just really appreciate the quality of the music um so yeah that would be moby i love it well i'm guessing this answer is different also based on where you are in your life right now but what's the first thing you do when you wake up or would want to do <laughs> Ah, the first thing I would want to do when I wake up would be to have a cup of coffee and plan out my day uh, in silence. (laughs) I used to do that before I have kids, but now the first thing I do in the morning is check on my kids. Yeah. How old are the kids? So I have two daughters. My older daughter is two and a half and my younger daughter is five months old. Oh my goodness. You are so in the thick of it. I'm beyond impressed and inspired. Okay. Is there an an entrepreneur that you feel inspired by or that you most admire? Oh, wow. I mean, there, there are many, 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 actually the most top of mind one, because I was listening to your podcast and um, Danielle Braga was one of the guests. Oh, I was going to see if you knew her because like women (laughs) badasses in the AI space. And I was like, you have to know her. Women badasses in the AI space. That's, that's exactly how I would describe her. And uh, even in her interview, she's so intense and has such a diversity of experience and just wicked smart. Uh, Definitely, definitely, I would say one of the entrepreneurs that inspires me. Well, we need to um, hang out with her. She's also super fun and super cool. So yes, make it happen. So tell me, you started talking about Moby in high school. Where were you in high school? And like, as a little girl, where did you grow up? So I was born in a country called Kazakhstan, which is a not particularly well-known country, but it is the ninth largest country by land in the world. Uh, most people know, the only thing that they know about Kazakhstan is Borat, uh, which is- Yeah, I was going to say, I am from Kazakhstan. related yes. to Kazakhstan. Yes. <laughs> so I grew up in Kazakhstan and my family uh, immigrated to the US when I was 13. So I entered high school in the US at the age of 13. It was a very strange experience. 13, isn't it usually like 14 or 15? So you were just like young and probably not, uh, was your English strong at the time? (laughs) So the story is uh, my parents decided to uh, make the move to the United States for a range of reasons. And I was 13, I just finished seventh grade in Kazakhstan and we moved to actually we moved first to Portland, Oregon, but then for schools, my parents decided to go to Vancouver, Washington because it had better schools. And we found an apartment and the high school was in the walking distance from the apartment. And the middle school was like a 15 minute drive. And I also have a brother who was in the elementary school. So my parents were like, okay, we can't drive both of you. We'll drive your brother. You should go to high school because it's walking distance. I think you can make it. So I went from seventh grade to high school in the U.S. It was a very strange experience. And how was that first year? Like, what was that integration like? Uh, Wild. Uh, Very confusing. The culture is very different. My English was reasonable. 
I, I, and so Kazakhstan is a strange place. It's kind of a melting pot of cultures and languages. So when it comes to language, basically from the first grade, we were studying English, Kazakh, and Russian. So my English was conversational. I also, my parents were kind of gearing up to us moving uh, out of Kazakhstan. So I was studying English. I went to study it in England for a bit. So I was a very strange kid in, in high school in Vancouver, Washington, because for one, I come from Kazakhstan. That's like the year when Borat came out. I was so lucky. Uh, so this girl from like country, the country that nobody knows who speaks um, English in a really strange way with a British accent. It was very confusing. Uh, but I think it was it was a fantastic experience. I don't think I would do anything differently. It was kind of like I was. Were the kids nice to you? It, I mean, it's high, it's high school. Who's nice? Yeah. <laughs> who's who's nice? In oh, high I know. School? It's so true. It's like the craziest <laughs> years. But it sounds like I mean, you've just got this um, extremely warm, positive aura. And of course, I'm meeting you. This is half the reason why I started the podcast is because like you meet people and you're like, oh, look at her. She's this badass CEO, so smart and blah, blah. But like, how different are you from then? Or were you the same then? And like, this is just my DNA. Oh, that's, a, that's a hard question. I I would say I was uh, pretty much the same. I, I was a math nerd. I liked to play video games and everything that's related to computers. Uh, which is uh, still the case in, in, to an extent. And I I mean, I'm still an extrovert. I think like introvert, extrovert that changes kind of throughout your life, at least based on my own observation. Uh, I was like an extreme extrovert in high school. I really wanted to hang out with everybody, learn how they think, why they think what they think. Uh, so I had a lot of... Uh, from the high school perspective, what was strange is I wanted to be friends with everyone, but there was this like very confusing social structure. Like you could be friends with people who do sports or you could be friends with cool kids or you could be friends with like the fringe kids or you could be friends with the immigrant kids. It was very confusing. I wanted to be friends with everyone. I, I think I was successful to an extent, um, but it was definitely kind of confusing to navigate. So it was a, a lot of, yeah. a, a lot of, a lot of stuff was happening that I had to figure it's, out. It's going to help you a lot as a mom, as your kids get older, um, because it's it's gotten even crazier these days. I feel like the kids have like these strong delineations between like groups and it's just like right out of the movies where I feel like it wasn't as much like that I when I grew up. It was like everybody was friends with everybody, at least in my high school. Anyway, did you have a sense back then, you know, playing with computers, playing video games? like that you could ever be an entrepreneur and was there any um modeling of that anywhere around you huh. so my parents are both civil engineers turned entrepreneurs uh, not by choice i want to say so my parents uh, you know finished university in 1992 and another exciting thing that happened in 1992 is the soviet union fell apart and uh, it was very confusing, especially in Kazakhstan. Nobody really cared about civil engineers. It was like probably another five, eight, ten years before really like construction began and civil engineers became in demand. So my parents had to figure out what to do, and uh, they became entrepreneurs. They ran many, many different businesses that are kind of adjacent to civil engineering. 
throughout their life and are still running businesses. So there was a lot of entrepreneurial experience in my childhood. And I actually did not want to become an entrepreneur. I was like, never. I, it's too much. My parents are always running around, stressed out. Um, there's just like so many things that they have to juggle and there's too much chaos. So I was like, no, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm okay. I've experienced that. I don't need to do this. Um, that was me, I would say up until, I don't know, maybe up until a few years into my job at Amazon. That was, oh, interesting. I did not want to be an entrepreneur. And so what did you want to be? I mean, there are many things that I wanted to be as a kid, you know, like interior designer, clothes designer, model. I think like everybody goes through these like weird phases, but around, I think around middle school, I decided that I want to be a mathematician, which was a very odd choice. But the the reason that that got into my head was because I lived on a street uh, and the street uh, name was named after a famous mathematician, Sofia Kavalevskaya, famous uh, Russian mathematician. And in my city, there was no other street named after a woman. So I was like, okay, well, you know, if you want to make it in life, <laughs> you, you should do math because if you do math well, uh, maybe they'll name a street after you. That was kind of my, one of my very, very early um, interesting role models so I I was good at math and then I kind of created this vision for myself that this is one direction I can take things if I want to succeed and you know be recognized and make a difference in the world to an extent that is you know impactful enough that somebody would want to name a street after me <laughs> I should go for math Interesting. So you're studying, you're thinking you're going to be a mathematician. Did you have teachers or others or mentors during that period of time in your life that created a vision that that could be possible? As far as mentors, I was very, very fortunate starting from Kazakhstan and, you know, throughout my life to have a lot of people who are smart and caring and nurturing to kind of steer me in a very gentle way. Uh, starting in middle school, I had this amazing teacher uh, in the class called informatics, who introduced me to a lot of the very early, uh, let's say, programming things. Uh, very, I was making like, very simple games. Um, I was playing a lot of logic games, a lot of kind of algorithmic games. And I think I attribute to his uh, direction, the fact that I'm today running an AI company. Uh, and then, you know, throughout my life, there were both mentors, it, even in my high school in the US, and then later in college, who recognized how much I enjoy math and algorithms to kind of steer me into, into the direction of uh, pursuing a degree in math. And when did I change my mind? Actually, I mean, technically never, because I, <laughs> right. I got admitted into, so in high school, I took every possible math class that you can take as a high school student. I did Running Start, which is an awesome program we have in Washington. And I went to a community college in Vancouver, Washington, and I literally took every single math class that was kind of like a thing that I wanted to accomplish while in high school. 
And when I got into UW, I transferred over from um, from the community college to UW. I was trying to decide between computer science and applied math. I went for applied math. And after I graduated in 2008 with an applied math degree, I wanted to go further and do a PhD. And I guess that's where things have pivoted a little bit, but I was pretty true to you know my goal of becoming a mathematician to an extent. Oh yeah, oh definitely. I know you did end up going and um, and going back and getting a master's and and pursuing further schooling. But in between there, it sounds like if I'm following this right, you went right into Amazon. Is that right? Right out of you, Dad. Yes, yes. I want to hear all about that. And I also read that your parents helped influence that decision. Was it a decision? Like, was there like Amazon or? another thing or it was just what do you think of Amazon yeah so I I graduated in 2008 which is the best time to graduate yeah, right. from uh from a university it was you know the economy crashed things were just super strange I guess it's it's strange to talk about that now because things are still strange so yes <laughs> not not much has changed that it, it comes in cycles but at the time in 2008 it, it really felt you know, the world is is changing dramatically and there's so much uncertainty. So I graduated with an applied math degree. I really wanted to go to grad school, do a PhD. I was super excited about the intersection of neuroscience and, and math. It was close to artificial intelligence, but I was more excited about the biology side of things and like what what is the intersection of, of math and artificial intelligence and the human brain. And I, at that time, you know, come graduating from the university, I went and I interviewed at a bunch of places. It was all very inbound. So I think the the one place uh, that didn't suffer uh, in as far as the recruiting goes during the, uh, the crisis of 2008 is interns and like, um, out of college recruitment because it's generally fairly cheap. Uh, so there were a lot of companies that were hiring straight out of college. Uh, I interviewed at Facebook, I interviewed at Hulu, I interviewed at Amazon, I interviewed at a handful of other places. And I ended up going to Amazon. And my parents at the time, uh, they they looked at, you know, they immigrated to this country that was, you know, flourishing and had all the American dreams that you could fulfill for yourself. And suddenly like seven years later, there's this like absolute madness. And when I wanted to go do a PhD, they were like, okay, maybe, you know, you try, if, if there is a job on the table, maybe you go for it because that, you know, might just disappear next year. You never know. You might not be able to come back if you change your mind. So they convinced me to try and go get a job and work. Um, I, I chose Amazon as, as, um, my for the first place I landed, I remember talking to my grandma at the time, and I love telling the story. Uh, basically, you know, she's watching me graduating with a supplied math degree, and then I call her and I'm like, "Grandma, I got this job. It's amazing. Amazon is not a well-known company in 2008." And I tell her it's like this company that sells books on the internet, 
And my grandma's like, okay, well, I guess that's um, that's what you get. You know, as a mathematician, you go work at a bookstore. The bookstore yeah. doesn't have a store. It's a little problematic, but hopefully you'll make the most out of it. That's so funny. I love it. And you were there almost nine years and it took you kind of all, all over the place. You lived in Berlin. You lived in New York. Is that right? Yes. Cool cities. I love New York. And we were supposed to go to Berlin uh, this summer. We had like a passport issue, but um, I love Berlin also. How was that experience working at Amazon? And also two part question. And um, the first part is what was the interview process like for you? Second question is just like, what was your experience like there? Okay. So the interview process, this was long time ago, but to me, I remember going through all of the interviews and I think I did like five or six different companies and they all had similar format, which is, you know, you, you have a few phone screens and then you go on site and you talk to a few people. Amazon really stood out in how organized things were and kind of, I, I'm a very logical person. So when I look at something, I'm like, okay, I can understand why it's this way. Uh, that was the Amazon interview process. I I still love the Amazon interview process. We have implemented it at Y Labs. I was a bar raiser at Amazon. Uh, so I think that was one of the reasons that I chose Amazon because the way they were interviewing and my experience meeting different members of the team uh, during the interview process and the types of questions they were asking just all really made sense. Um, but I would say, it, you know, every company has more or less the same the same process of how many interviews you get, who you talk to, uh, but the types of questions they ask are very different at Amazon versus others, even in 2008. And have you implemented um, any of their like no feedback or, um, you know, if one person doesn't want to hire, my, it's like they're, not, they're a no hire? Uh, so we have implemented these things, although I would talk about them a little bit differently. So one of the, I think there are a few things that make the Amazon interview process, um, I could say superior to a lot of others that I have seen. Uh, one of the things is the snow feedback, which is um, everybody has to, so every interviewer goes through the interview, they write notes. And they do not share these notes with anyone until the debrief. And on uh, during the debrief, everybody reveals their feedback and the group reads the feedback together. So the first time you're exposed to opinions of others in the group is right there during the debrief. So you're not biased uh, and you have already made your vote and made your decision and wrote it up. Um, I really like that process and we implemented that at Y Labs. And then the the idea of if somebody is not on board or is not inclined, then basically you are not getting hired. I, I would say yes, that not is that is not entirely how it works. So the the beauty of this um concept is that if somebody is not inclined, so or rather, sorry, scratch that. The beauty of that process is that the group has to come to a consensus. So if somebody is not inclined, there's a reason why they're not inclined. And if the group, when they come together, has other signals to demonstrate to the person who's not inclined that maybe they didn't get the full signal, maybe they're um, contradicting signals, 
etc., they they would change their mind and they would be supportive of the hire. So the debrief process itself is a process of coming into a consensus. And I have been at debriefs where one person is not inclined and then they completely change their mind and they're excited about the person, supportive. They even sign up to mentor that person because they maybe still see the gaps and they say, okay, well, because of how amazing this person is, I'm actually going to personally step up and make sure that like, oh, I help them get, get yeah. to, to the bar, uh, not to the bar, get to, uh, kind of being their best at the company. And I have seen loops where one person was not inclined, everybody was inclined, and that one person swayed the entire loop to be not inclined with the strength of the signal that they got. I think that yeah. that debrief process is uh, excellent and it works really, really well. Yeah, interesting. I agree. My one thing when I was saying the no feedback is the no feedback to the candidate too, which from where I sit, sometimes that can be an opportunity to help the candidate or that it was like, you know, Amazon's obviously so big that it could be like not inclined in Kindle, but maybe they're great for AWS type of thing. Like that's, I guess, and and hopefully one day, or if that's where you're trying to go, why labs would be at that size where, you know, one department says no, but probably pretty good for Y labs, but just not for this role. I'm just curious how you guys do that. Yeah, we, so we do that on Y labs as well already. And I would say, you know, Amazon is big and and there are parts of Amazon that run the process well and parts that don't. Ideally, every candidate should be considered for Amazon. And even if they're not a fit for a particular team, but they are a fit for Amazon, typically a good recruiter will find a place for them elsewhere in the company because it's so yeah. hard to find great people. Yeah, um, it is. And I hope they give feedback. Uh, at least, I mean, when I was a bar raiser, and I've interviewed, I don't know, maybe 400 people while at Amazon. Uh, we always, like the recruiters, if they're doing their their job well, they go back to the candidate and they give feedback and they talk about, you know, let's try in a year or so um, yeah. or some other kind of, you know, there are various HR rules around it, but within the yeah. within the guidelines. I'm getting the sense it was a very positive overall work experience for you. Like, tell me some of the things and attributes of the culture that you loved and some of the stuff that you've, it sounds like brought over in your philosophy of leading a company and other things that you might've changed or have decided to change. Yeah, overall, I, I have absolutely loved my time at Amazon. It was, I was very fortunate to join at the time when the company was still, relatively small but growing very rapidly and watching processes being set up both from kind of the management the the culture the operations perspective that that was that's priceless experience uh so loved loved my time at amazon wouldn't change anything uh, and even you know would again go go back in time if i could and spend another eight years uh doing the same thing maybe moving teams more frequently but um, that wouldn't change anything okay so uh that's amazon what have we implemented at y labs so y labs the the genesis of the company is we have four co-founders and three of them are from Amazon. And I have worked with uh, the two of, of my co-founders that are from Amazon 
I then left Amazon, spent a few years figuring out what we're building, and then went back two years later, and uh, they joined me to build. So, you know, three quarters of the company DNA is very much Amazon, and we had to both consciously identify what we are bringing in and leaving behind uh, from basically day one. And the big reason for that is and that's both a good thing about Amazon and a bad thing about Amazon is the culture that they have gets absolutely ingrained into you. Like you can take a person out of Amazon. You cannot take Amazon out of the person. It's there forever. Like when Amazon ex Amazon people get together, even at a bar, they start speaking in this language that is, you know, kind of they tile these leadership principles in how into how they communicate. It's very strange. Um, and I have it's I have powerful. Lived. It's incredible. Exactly. It's 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 incredible. I think that's a very good way to put it. I have been there and watched how this happens. And I think what's interesting is. It's not like you don't go into Amazon and you see like, oh, here are our values like on the wall. In fact, I don't think I have ever seen their values and their leadership principles like spelled out somewhere on the wall. They're just integrated into everything that Amazon does. So mm -hmm. even without without seeing them constantly written somewhere or discussing them actively, you just soak them up and everything you do at Amazon is just aligned with these values. I, I am still impressed at how much they have been able to maintain that. I mean, the company yes. has grown orders and orders of magnitude, became a global company, and that is still there. And when I moved to Berlin, Germany, to start a machine learning uh, research office there. I was one of the first people. In fact, I was kind of the transplant from the Seattle office with like the culture and the process and the operations and uh, coming into Berlin to help start uh, this kind of, you know, growing effort uh, in Berlin, Germany, it was our second office in Germany at the time, but first research center uh, focused on machine learning. So it, it was amazing to see how this culture takes up in a place like Berlin, where no, nobody it's incredible. has worked I at love Amazon. It. And like a month later, uh, they start using the kind of, they think in the terms of these leadership principles, they align how, how what their goals are, what the goals of their team it, uh, teams are with these leadership principles. It's very fascinating. I think yeah. there has to be like an anthropological study on how this. <laughs> I completely agree. Amazon is, is such a fascinating company and culture. And um, I could not agree more. That's why I love asking these questions. Cause I did know that three out of four of you are Amazonian. So I was curious how much is like, you know, I won't do this again in my second marriage or I will, you know, this is the things I want to take with me or incorporate. Um, tell me what you did there as far as your job. And also for people listening, maybe you can tell, uh, the audience, like what is machine learning and what, how is that different than AI? All right. Well, let me start with that question because a lot of what I did at Amazon is connected to machine learning, AI. So uh, the the difference between machine learning and AI is very subtle. I would say it's 
probably just the kind of a marketing speak. We went from like statistics, logistic regression to uh, machine learning to AI, now to generative AI. It, overall, it's the same process, which is uh, basically a computer program that can learn to perform some task by looking at examples. And these tasks could be simple things like um, looking at it at an entry in an Excel spreadsheet that describes your customer with like a lot of attributes and saying whether this customer is likely to churn or not based on their usage of your product, for example. Um, that's a simple task to something more complicated, like uh, taking a picture as an input and saying whether it's a picture of a cat or a dog to something further complicated, which is what generative AI is about, where um, takes in lots of examples of, let's say, blog posts. So these generative AI models are trained basically on all of the information available on the internet and then giving a model, these generative AI, one of these generative AI models like ChatGPT, a set of bullet points, could you could get a blog post or a marketing copy um, and stuff like that. So to summarize, it's a computer program that performs tasks given lots of examples of how these tasks are performed. That's a great explanation of it. And what did you do exactly when you were at Amazon? So I started at Amazon working on what now is called DevOps, uh, developer operations. So making sure that the retail website, the amazon.com and all of the international versions of it is running for the customers, is available, uh, is fast, and that all of the kind of features and capabilities that the engineering teams are building for this website are working correctly. And over the time, I... I've done many, many different things, but I would say my career there kind of splits into two parts. Uh, the first one is just general software. How do you make sure that it's fast, available, that the software works? And the second part uh, is AI software. So in 2012, when AI became in vogue again, <laughs> uh, thanks to a, a lot of advancements and, and deep learning, Amazon decided to start investing into um, AI teams that build features for the Amazon business. And I joined one of such teams and moved to Berlin, Germany to kind of help uh, recruit and build the European presence of this team. And in that role, I was basically the bridge between engineers, scientists, and the business. So we'll take a business problem. And one of the biggest ones that I had the pleasure of solving was to help the Amazon business predict how many um, AirPods are going to be purchased in the next 12 months, or how many microphones or how many um, Nike shoes. And uh, the problem was very, very interesting because prior to solving this problem with AI, it was largely done uh, by hand. So there were a lot of um, people and stock managers who would have very complicated spreadsheets and everybody used a little bit of their own magic to predict because in the end of the day, uh, Amazon had to predict for 800 million products how many of each products are they going to sell globally, which is a lot. So it was a very uh, hard problem and 
having humans do it like the inventory as the inventory grows more people have to be hired and there's more like black magic and how to predict this and that was one of the problems that i had the chance to tackle uh which involved building first a, a team um that specializes in forecasting so predicting the future and then building software that is based on uh, a wide range of AI algorithms that would allow us on daily basis to generate the prediction of how many AirPods and overall 800 million different products would be purchased 12 months into the future, uh, which was That's incredible. Um, quite, quite a task. You could have, Alyssa, you really could have, you know, just stayed at Amazon um, because the role that you were in is so different than a CEO role. Like what gave you the confidence, the gumption, the kind of vision um, to leave? I mean, especially because of how well Amazon's performed over those years. And, you know, a lot of people feel like they've got those kind of golden handcuffs and can't leave. Um, so the first advice that really worked for me as far as golden handcuffs is I took all of the paperwork that described my golden handcuffs and I burned it. So I don't have any way of looking back because yes, it's so hard to leave from a company like Amazon that is growing, doubling, tripling, uh, and you have these, you know, numbers on paper of what you could be, uh, you can get stuck there forever. Well, and beyond the numbers, as far as what you can earn (laughs) the problem set and the case, the, the use case for everything just keeps growing. So someone like you, who's brilliant and who wants to be challenged can be like, great, thanks for doing Berlin now next challenge. And so you can really be an intrapreneur for someone like you. Absolutely. So I would say the main reason I left was because I saw the potential of what could be done in the space where I developed a deep expertise outside of Amazon to impact companies and people that uh, otherwise, I wouldn't be able to impact while at Amazon. And specifically, the last few years when I was at Amazon, we were building tools that would help AI practitioners, AI developers, make sure that they could put this um, AI software into various functions of the business and into customer experiences in a way that is responsible and reliable and delivers benefit both to the business and to the end user. So while building these tools and seeing how these tools help internally at Amazon, help ensure that this AI technology that we are inserting into various parts of the business is benefiting the business more and more, the better tools we provide. I got super excited to see, well, first of all, I was kind of, I was worried that if I stay at Amazon, then I would not see how these types of tools impact places that are outside of Amazon, impact other teams, impact other companies. I was very excited about kind of bringing that inside, bringing that know-how, bringing that information to the world and making it available because I was seeing AI being used, you know, by, by everyone in the Today, it's used by everyone, period. Even my grandma uses ChatGPT. But I was seeing the beginning of everyone, every company starting to invest in AI. And I got 
very, very excited about the idea of taking what I learned, these best practices and these responsible uses of this technology and taking uh, that knowledge and those capabilities and making them available to everyone. So that's that's what got me eventually uh, to to leave. And, and that was the genesis for YLabs. And did you feel that you needed to do it out of like, you know, either Madrona MBL, Madrona Venture Labs or Allen Institute for AI? Or was there, because is that where you kind of incubated the idea and um, tested it before officially launching YLabs? Yes. So uh, the short answer is I, I tend to be a very methodical person. So when I left Amazon, I was like, okay, I want to build these tools, but how how am I going to do it? Like I, all of my friends, everybody I know works at Amazon. And now I want to build these tools for people who are not at Amazon. I don't even know who these people are. I've been at Amazon for eight years. So the first thing that I wanted to do is to expand my network and just understand how do people outside of Amazon think, right? Because especially with all the culture Kool-Aid, <laughs> I, I had to really change my mindset. And I, I did it by going back to school. So I took, I, effectively, I took a year off. So when I was leaving Amazon, everybody thought it was crazy because I was like, I'm I'm leaving and they're like, where are you going? I'm not going anywhere. I'm just leaving. I'm going to take a year off. I will do things that I think will enrich me as uh, an individual, as a professional. So I took the year off. I did, I made a promise to myself that I will not work for money anywhere. And I will do things that I feel make me uh, happier and help me grow. So I did a few things. I went to the University of Washington and did a master's in uh, entrepreneurship, which is like a amazing, strange version of an MBA, which I really enjoyed. And I volunteered a lot. So I met Jay Bartow while at the University of Washington and like my second week there and I uh, learned about Madrona Venture Labs and spent some time volunteering there. I then went to all kinds of events that were put up in Seattle, entrepreneurial events, and I volunteered at like an ed tech startup, at uh, agriculture tech startup, just in a whole bunch of places. I would just come up to startup founders, very early stage, like seed stage or pre-seed stage and be like, okay, I want to be your intern. Like, tell me what I can do. I can get on the phone, call your customers, ask them about how they're doing. I can uh, maybe write some code for you. I can do market research. Like, how can I help? I'm willing to do whatever, whatever you need to get done. Uh, but the only uh, kind of term is I'm doing it for free and I get to kind of leave once like I will do a project basis so I can always kind of go elsewhere so I'm not stuck in one place uh, I can bring value and then leave uh, so that was my way of understanding what is how does the startup world work uh, building my network a really experienced such a unique approach hand. I love it yeah so um, okay and then you asked about the Allen Institute for artificial intelligence, which is where yes. YLabs uh, was literally born at. Uh, and I met Vu, uh, who's a, uh, one of the technical managing directors at one of the Seattle events, technically before the incubator even started. Uh, and I 
went to visit the Allen Institute. I mean, I come from the AI world. The Allen Institute for the people in the AI world is like, uh, I don't know, it's like the Met, the Metropolitan Museum for like museum nerds. I don't know what, like that that type of place. It was the place where everybody wanted to come in and hang out with the scientists because they just have such an incredible talent pool and amazing research project. So I came to visit and I finally felt like I found a place with people that I been missing from Amazon because I went from hanging out with a lot of scientists to hanging out with a lot of entrepreneurs and it was great, but I it was not quite my people. So when I came to the Allen Institute for the first time and I came there for lunch and Vu introduced me to a handful of teams and to the researchers. I just felt like I was in the place with the people that I can relate to and have the conversations that I really miss having about all of the latest research. So I joined the very early days of the incubator um, together with Gaurav from Lexion and Michael from Well Said. We were the three people in one tiny room in the AI2 office who were sitting and trying to figure out how to build companies. <laughs> what an incredible experience for you. Like, seriously, this is, um, you know, as you know, I've had, I don't even know, over 200 CEOs on. And I love, these are the parts of the story that, you know, people may or may not know, but I feel so inspired by because a lot of it just talks to your kind of attributes, which is, you know, grit, curiosity, um, fearlessness, you know, smart, being intuitive, knowing where you're, where to go and who to talk to and being open, um, all, all really important attributes. And so how did you come up with the name and what was the original business idea and business model? So the name, Y Labs, as I was interviewing a lot of the data scientists in the very, very early days before Y Labs was a thing, I would meet up and Seattle is an incredible place to build an AI company because so many companies have data science outposts here, like hundreds of companies. And that's not a well-known fact. So I had the pleasure of being um, in the place where all the data scientists are uh, living essentially and working for enterprises and also connected to AI too. So everybody would take a coffee with me and I would drink seven coffees a day. It was amazing. <laughs> I would meet up with the data scientists and I would ask them, you know, what is the worst part of your day? <laughs> Let's do a complaining session. Like what, what do you hate about your day? Uh, and the goal for me was to understand what are the key pain points. So I was, I was focused on finding what parts of the AI operations should I be solving? Because at Amazon, we had Amazon problems, but when it comes to people outside of Amazon, they probably most likely have a bit of different problems, different set of problems. And one of the 
words that would come up a lot in their description of what sucks about their day is why. They would be like, well, I don't know, why is this working the way it's working? Why is this failing? Why is my end user? So they would be like in forecasting examples, right? Like I, I were generating this prediction of how many things are going to be sold. And then somebody on the business side is like, but why is it this way? I don't think it's this way. Explain to me why, uh, or something breaks. So why would come up a lot? Uh, and actually funny story, uh, to bring Gorov into the conversation, uh, I, you know, we'll have like these weekly meetings at AI2 talking about our research and what's, what's going on, what we're doing. And Gorov would be like, oh, it's YAI. And it was kind of a funny, sounds funny. It's kind of hard to say YAI. And for a while <laughs> we were, I was running with this YAI and then eventually I landed on, well, you know, explored all kinds of names and landed on Y Labs because, and still to this it's day. It's such a good name. Ever since I heard it, it just stood out to me. I mean, my job is to like know companies and there's some that I don't even know what they do, but the name just stands out. And I've always loved the name Y Labs. It's so good. Thank you. I'm glad it resonates. What does the business do? So at Y Labs, uh, we make sure that AI works and doesn't do harm. That's the very quick and short description. We help enterprises like uh, Square or Glassdoor. They just published a blog about um, using Y Labs this week. Uh, we help companies like Square and Glassdoor watch after their AI and we notify them when it's not working as expected and we help them fix it fast. That is kind of the super quick description. For those who are listening on the engineering side, uh, Y-Labs essentially is just like Datadog or Splunk or New Relic, but for AI applications. We monitor, provide observability, aspects of security for the behavior of AI application. And so I'm guessing that your business is just going to continue to go through the roof because I can just tell you from where we sit, a lot of our conversations are now going into the AI space um, in our meetings about people trying to figure out how to incorporate AI, but they don't necessarily know why or how or what. And even people who think that they do, because we, anyway, so I think it's going to be really fascinating to watch your business. And so how does the company make money? We provide software to enterprises. Um, it could be, you know, every, everybody from Fortune 100s to AI first startups to do monitoring of their models. And we charge them per model per month. So they, you know, some businesses run a few models uh, in production, a few of these AI models in production, and some businesses run hundreds of AI models in production. And in production means that this, this AI piece of software or AI model is actively impacting either internal business decisions or customer experiences that are critical to the business. So making sure that this AI piece inside the software is working reliably and is, you know, doing what it's designed to do is very, very critical. Yeah. And so can, yeah. can you share the, um, the fundraising? Like, did you bootstrap it? How did you fund the business? And 
um, separately, I'm so curious always about like the very first check you got from your very first customer. Like, what was that like? I always ask two questions at once. It's always fun, but that's my ADD brain. My brain's going too fast for my words. No, it's all good. Then these are uh, fantastic, fantastic uh, points to double click on. So fundraising, we we raise money from uh, Madrona and uh, Defy Ventures down in the Bay Area, and that was the seed the seed round. And then in 2021, we brought in. The AI fund, which is Andrew Ng's. Andrew Ng is uh, one of the most well-known um, AI scientists, uh, founder of Coursera, uh, and you know one of the yeah one of the icons of the AI technology. Uh, he runs AI fund, and um, the AI fund joined in in 2021. And uh, among our other investors is Bezos Expeditions, uh, who also was there in the seed round. Um, Ascend and a handful of others, small angels. Very impressive. And how was that process for you? Because you hadn't done it before. It was like uh, juggling axes. It was learning, drinking out of the fire hose uh, and trying to make sure this puzzle comes together. Uh, A lot of, yeah. I don't know if that's if that answers the question. I think yeah. Well, who, I was there was anybody like in your was there anybody in your corner that was advising you around like how to what to look for in in an investor, what to look for in a board member, um, what what counts as like kind of better money than other money. If, yeah, actually, maybe we can. It, but you know we what can I'm saying. Delete, we can delete my earlier response and re- replace it with this. So okay. when we when I was raising seed, it was obviously my first experience, and there were a lot of things that were completely new to me. There were two people who were instrumental to my success, and one of them is now my co-founder, uh, whose name is Maria Karmanova, who was at Madrona at the time. So Maria and I met when I was at the uh, at AI two before Ylabs was a thing, and she. Well, we just connected right away, had a lot in common. I loved her Cloudflare background because she was an operator and not just, you know, an investor who kind of talks about the market and the pitch deck. Um, so her, the insight that she brought in and helping me navigate those those very, very early days of figuring out the round where um, amazing and uh, priceless. And obviously now she's part of YLabs. So I'll tell that story in a second. Uh, along the way, also Brian Hale, uh, he was one of the partners at the incubator and now at Anthos Capital was incredible, uh, both because of his, again, operator background and investor background, learned a ton from him in how to navigate this uh, landscape, you know, what to look for in investors. Uh, Kirby from Ascent. It yeah. was also amazing. I, I was just very lucky at AI2. You know, he was hanging out at AI2. We had desks next to each other. Um, was incredible at kind of helping me understand what is it, what what does fund fundraising look like, how how to how to run the process and so on. So I would say three people in particular uh, who helped me make sense of this very confusing thing for an engineer. Uh, it was uh, something that I 
haven't even imagined doing uh, leaving Amazon, but I'm very fortunate to have amazing mentors. Yeah. So tell me what the, the Maria thing, how did that end up coming to be that she joined? So as I said, Maria and I connected uh, in the very, very early days of Y-Labs and her insight was just incredible because she was at Cloudflare in the early days of Cloudflare. I think she was uh, like one of the first 20 employees. So she saw the the very, very genesis of a company that is incredible and iconic now. Um, and we talked a lot about the early days of the business, how to operate it, how to get first customers, et cetera. And, you know, then COVID happened and Maria and I used to live very close. Uh, she is kind of in the Madison park area and I was living in central district. So when everybody was sitting at home looking to zoom, I would uh, drive down and we would walk on like the opposite sides of the sidewalk and like talk about the business. And it became somewhat of a ritual and just her the advice that she was giving and the insight was so incredible and this was literally like the first few months of, of y labs uh that i at some point geared up and you know braved up she's you know one of my literally she works for my lead investor into the seed round i was like Maria, it's so incredible to be discussing this with you. And we go to, you know, every aspect of, of operating this company. What do you think about maybe joining? Because you seem to be uh, very excited about what we're doing. There's incredible alignment. I, I like can't imagine at this point building a company without such a thought partner. And I yeah floated the idea and eventually she joined. Which that's is a great, I that's a great story. Lucky. I think this probably, oh, yeah. as far as luck goes. Uh, well, and she got ones. lucky too. You both got lucky. That's great. That's great. So how would you describe, um, I guess, competitors or the problems that you're solving exactly? And will those, how will those change over time? So as far as competitors, it's very interesting because essentially, Essentially, every cloud company is building various tools to enable enterprises use AI and, you know, be it AWS or Google Cloud or Azure, they have tools for both building the AI software and doing what we do, monitoring. But their tools for monitoring and operations in general tend to be super bare bones to basically cross all of the checkboxes. And once the team at an enterprise gets kind of beyond the first hurdle, which is getting this model, get this AI application to production and starts understanding the complexities of operating it, these tools become insufficient. And that's where YLabs comes in uh, to essentially replace and take them to the next level. And one of the amazing things that is happening uh, that I'm super excited and very proud of for YLabs is we have been able to align ourselves and partner with all of the cloud providers and literally become the solution that they know and they trust and they can recommend to their customers. So they bring the customers who are ready to move over to a more sophisticated uh, solution, a more mature and full-featured solution for monitoring observability. Uh, and we kind of 
take them at that point and guide them through the journey and make sure that they switch uh, very seamlessly to YLABS and start getting even more value out of their AI applications. And this is this question is because I'm not technical, so it might be ridiculous, but I'm just curious, like, is it harder or different to handle larger scale customers or like the larger amounts of data or is it the same process and then who owns the data? So that's that's a very insightful question. It is very hard to handle large volumes of data, which is one of the kind of, I think, I'll call it one of the differentiators that we have at YLabs because we come from Amazon and large volumes of data is basically all we know because Amazon uh, is one of the kind of most massive operationally. They run some of the most massive AI models. Um, so we built YLabs to work very seamlessly with massive, massive amounts of data. So we work with uh, Square, for example, and we monitor a lot of the transactions uh, that go through AI algorithms, which is a huge scale. Um, and as far as the, the bigger the scale, the more complexity there is and the harder it is to ensure that this model is doing what you intend for all types of customers that it's impacting. So maybe if you have a model that is only predicting, you know, how many, uh, whether the customer is going to churn or not for a small fraction of your customers, maybe for the most high risk customers, right? Uh, then you can kind of control it and, you know, uh, analyze its outputs and make sure that no customers are being incorrectly classified as, as high risk of churning and, you know, uh, so on, so on. If you have a model that impacts every one of your customers, then maybe for some section or some segment of your customers, this, this AI model doesn't work well. And suddenly your customers that are super loyal are going to get these annoying phone calls saying like, oh, how are you doing? Like, are you enjoying your services? And the prediction of the AI model, which incorrectly classified them as a high risk of churning is actually going to impact their experience in a negative way. And that is what eventually is dangerous and tends to harm the business. And that's where YLabs comes in. We kind of help dissect this and help the team make sure that every single customer who's impacted by these AI decisions, AI uh, predictions is impacted in a way that's that's positive for both the customer experience. So, so it's business. like a safety net. Yes, it's a great way to and, put it. And then who owns the data? The customers still own the data. So AI, the data that goes through these AI models, AI algorithms is very proprietary. So the way YLabs works is we generate all of the insights without taking the data away from the customer. And then we take, we process everything, we generate all of the kind of alerts, all of the red flags about what's happening with the AI. And then we surface that in our platform and the platform only takes the insights. So the raw data, all the proprietary things that are very, very key to the customer to keep proprietary, uh, stay on the customer side. Got it. Interesting. I'm always fascinated by the idea, you know, we're, we're obviously, we've got a lot of clients that are in the AI space. And one of the challenges or like thoughts that goes through my mind is like this chicken and egg thing. Like, how do you get talent when they're saying something like must have 10 to 12 years of experience doing X, Y, Z, that's like different today than it was you know, six months ago, how are you attracting and vetting 
AI talent or are you more, um, you know, at what point do you, do you scale to the point where you can say, let's bring in these attributes and I can teach them some of these, um, I guess, skill sets? Ah. So, and, and, and my opinion is probably unique because I come from math background and I tend to think that if you, if you understand and can use complex concept, complex mathematical concepts, then it doesn't matter what type of AI technology you have to deal with. You can deal with uh, basically any type going from like very simple logistic regressions to deep learning models to understanding those new architectures, transformer architectures that enable foundation models and, and all of the great stuff that's happening with Gen AI. So I don't think as far as talent goes, uh, the kind of the, the key skills are having a very solid math and engineering background, software engineering background, uh, and having some experience in taking a particular some kind of doesn't matter what kind AI algorithm AI model and making it work for a particular business problem those are all of the skills that really matter and everything else you can learn because the technology is just going so so fast it just goes like, so fast right yes I, know, I, bought, I bought a book right when like chat GPT came out and I was like a book what was I thinking because of course it's like I haven't finished it yet I'm like oh, I bet you this is like antiquated at this point um so outside of the actual like hard skills are there soft skills that you're drawn to that that are um the like non-starters these must be attributes in order to get hired at Y Labs? Curiosity and hustle. And the hustle is probably the hardest one to like put your finger on. Uh, but I, think... I was going to say, how do you measure hustle? <laughs> yeah, we, mm -hmm. we, we actually have discussions like this at Y Labs. Well, that's good. It, you, it got is, you. you know it when you see it. I, I think that is the best answer. Um, but for the one thing that is hard, I think for a startup and it's especially hard for startup founders who come from big tech, from places like Amazon, Microsoft is to identify people who I would say is kind of similar to them, but not when hiring for Amazon, you can identify people who would do really, really well at Amazon. And I think there are some shared qualities. I think there's, you know, this this ownership bias for action, all of all of the, you know, good Amazon leadership principles. I think they align with the hustle, but ultimately the people who would do really well at Amazon wouldn't do well at a startup. So one of the hardest things I would say from finding the right people to join the company is recognizing what should be different about them versus, you know, the, the people that are amazing, incredible engineers or amazing, incredible scientists. And I think the, the one thing that uh, is absolutely crucial to, to identify is, is the desire to hustle. And part of that maybe is the ability to deal with chaos because startups are just chaotic. There's no structure, everything changes. The, the roadmap changes, the customer needs change a lot. Um, so there is a lot of chaos. So I'm just curious, um, you know, I know that it's really important to you to pay attention to and be aligned with um, governance and accountability around AI and machine learning. Like what, 
what are your thoughts there and and ways that companies are failing or making mistakes or being successful? What drives me to wake up every morning and, and go work with our customers and continue building Biolabs is the goal and the the sense of progress that we're making towards better accountability in AI. And the reason I'm so passionate about this is because I do still see, although there's less of it now, examples where enterprises who adopt AI think or have this misconception that it just works because it it's learning. And I it, the term machine learning is probably to blame. And the term artificial intelligence is also to blame because both of these terms incorrectly suggest that you have this software that is somehow always right and will learn and will figure it out. And the answers that it gives you are correct, which is absolutely not true. And that's a very dangerous misconception. Uh, Every problem with AI stems from that, um, you know, bias stems from that. The fact that, mm. no, if your model used the, an examples that are already biased uh, in order to, if you created the model based on examples that are already biased, it will be even more biased. It will exacerbate those biases. And uh, if you build your model on examples that are insufficient or do not cover all of the actual experiences that you want it to power, then the experiences that it hasn't observed are going to be very poor and poor to an extent that it will randomly generate an answer. So it's like, you know, it's the misconception that if you, you know, they're good interns and they're bad interns and the good interns, when they don't know, they say, I don't know, but I can go figure this out. And the bad interns, when they don't know, they make something up. Um, or they they kind of compose some kind of answer based on the things they have heard somewhere in the hallway. And that is AI. So AI is that intern that will never tell you that it doesn't know, that will always come up with some answer based on some things that it has heard or seen in the data that uh, was used for training, which is really dangerous. And I think until we have the right tools, the right notion, the right culture, the right mindset about the weaknesses of this technology, we can't benefit from it fully. And we are in danger of, of harming uh, and this, this harm because of how, um, because of how widespread AI is like yeah. every day, you Shauna are exposed to hundreds and hundreds of AI algorithms starting from the point where you pick up your phone or any piece 100%. of technology or if you have Alexa even before you pick up oh, your phone. Oh yeah it's ridiculous what was I looking for and then all of a sudden I got like an ad for it I mean it's crazy and so I'm just curious what role humans are playing in this like what is the responsibility of us as humans to I mean I guess to work with Y Labs you know to make sure that we're safe. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, you know, when it comes to humans who are making decisions at enterprises of how this technology is going to be used to impact people, to impact their customers and to impact their you know, employees, just knowing uh, the the weaknesses of the technology, knowing that AI is not always right, 
that you do need to very carefully watch and make sure that the decisions that it is suggesting could be incorrect, bias, made up, uh, harmful, toxic, etc. So using something to continuously monitor it. And then for humans who are exposed to AI, I think not not trusting it immediately, knowing that again, it's it's like so it's it's a technology that makes things up and makes those things sound very confident. So not trusting everything that AI generates, not trusting everything that ChatGPT generates, not using ChatGPT to create. Um, slides for teaching students or to, you know, write Wikipedia articles because that eventually is going to uh, just oh, this fill our internet yeah. with misinformation and fill our brains with things that 100%. are wrong, which is very scary. I went to an AI talk and it all like pivoted pretty quickly to like education and the impact on kids. And yeah, if, if people were, that's super scary and irresponsible. Okay. My final question is what fuels you? I would say doing my part, maybe small part, and leaving this world a better place than how I found it. And it's both through, I, I think what I can do as, as Alyssa is um, take the insight and the passion that I have about AI and make sure that it's available and it impacts um, both AI practitioners and and the humans. And also, you know, raising raising the family, that is going to, you know, make their small uh, impact on making the world better, and you know, being just a, a positive, and in, in some cases, a little sunshine, ray of sunshine in other people's lives when I, when I can't do otherwise. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.